0: Hi everyone, in this week's episode, we decided to re-air one of our top episodes actually of last year with my dear friend, Jessie Draper, who has a super unique approach to business because she's now an investor and also has spent time being an entrepreneur, launching her own businesses. So this is one of my personal favorites. I hope you enjoy this one and I'm wishing you a wonderful holiday season and I'll see you in the new year with new episodes. Enjoy. I literally got so many
1: no's. I almost started thinking of it as like a game. Okay, I'm not talking to the right person. Okay, you said no? Okay, so I'm gonna find the person, where's the yes? And it actually helps you be more creative
0: about whatever your goal is. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women get to the root cause of their period problems and hormonal imbalances. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Jessie Draper, to our show today. Jessie is the founding partner of Halogen Ventures, a VC firm focused on early stage investing in consumer tech companies led by female and co-ed teams. With women making 80% of household purchasing decisions, Jessie and her team are betting big on early stage female founded companies with billion dollar potential. Before diving into the world of venture capital, Jessie had an Emmy-nominated television series called The Valley Girl Show, where she would interview incredible entrepreneurs from Richard Branson, Sheryl Sandberg, Jessica Alba, and Mark Cuban. Female founders from all over flocked to be on her show, but were often too early in their business to join her. It was at this stage she met incredible female founders and started to invest directly in their businesses. After a few years investing and doing incredibly well, Jessie decided to create Halogen Ventures in 2015. She now has more than 70 companies in her portfolio, including The Skim, Babyliss, Third Love, and The Flex Company. Jessie was listed by Marie Claire Magazine as one of the 50 most connected women in America, and she's a regular investor and tech personality on Cheddar, CNBC, and CNN. We'll have a very candid conversation with Jessie about why she didn't think she could be a venture capitalist, how she trumped her own fears and thoughts around imposter syndrome, and the best advice she would give of anyone when it comes to managing burnout. We also get a behind the scenes look into what investors are looking for from traits they want in founders to the biggest mistakes they see founders making and so much more. Welcome to the show, Jesse. It's such an honor to have you join us today. I'm honored. I'm
1: honored. I love everything you're doing with this show. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, my gosh. I love everything that you're doing with your old show that you were inspiring women entrepreneurs and what you're doing today with Halogen Ventures. I mean, you're a big inspiration. So I know our community is just going to love this interview And before we go into your story, I'd actually love to start on a topic of rejection. There's so many women who have an idea for business, but they either maybe got rejected by their partner, a family member, a boss, and they're really using that rejection as a reason to think they're not good enough to launch their business. What would you say to that person who's using the excuse of rejection to prevent them from really getting started?
1: I would say... Don't look at rejection as a bad thing. If you're a founder, at least in this business, if you're a founder, a no is not a bad thing. I mean, as an investor, I say no a lot more than I say yes. And I have to say, as an investor, that's a really difficult thing to do. I'm always saying no. And you know, you just mentioned that you saw me at an event recently. And I mean, I walk into events like that and I've said no to so many of the companies I meet regularly. And I think the best thing you can do is show up the next time you see that person and just be like, hi, good to see you again. Here's what's been going on because I might invest the next time. Sometimes I just want to get to know you. So don't look at a no as a bad thing. Look at it as a no for now, or maybe you're not talking to the right person. And also you can turn it around. So for example, if I was an investor, which I am, (laughs) and... I turned you down. You could turn it around and try to learn from that and say, why didn't you invest today? What was your concern? And I can't tell you how often... like I do this when I'm fundraising. And I can't tell you how often the reason is, well, actually, we don't have a lot of liquidity right now, aka we don't have the capital to invest right now. And it's like, okay, well could have saved me some time and told me that before this meeting, but okay. But it's still good to get out there and meet investors for when they have raised and have a new fund. But I think sometimes the reason has nothing to do with you more often than not, it has nothing to do with you. And I think in those situations where you feel like you've been rejected one, use it to like drive you. I mean, the moments that are so difficult for me when someone said no, and I worked so hard and I just felt like completely rejected, I let those drive me, like Mm -hmm. make me work harder. I've had a lot of discouraging moments recently just being a female in finance and technology and those moments where I feel so low. And I mean, I don't wanna be a victim. Like I want to own it. And I want to take that and I want it to make me stronger. And
0: it drives me to work harder. And it's like, prove I'm wrong. Go prove I'm wrong. Exactly. And I love that because and we'll go into your story, even though you have to say no to entrepreneurs that may be coming in front of you. Like you've said, you've gone through your fair share of rejection. You were in acting and entertainment, which is like, I'm sure you got it all the time. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> That's,
1: totally. I mean, I was an actress. I was on a Nickelodeon show for a couple of years and did a bunch of movies. And I mean, the no's, I think that's why no's don't bother me because I literally got so many no's that I was like, oh, this this is just a normal thing. This is like everyday part of my life. Like people just say no. I almost started thinking of it as like a game. Okay, I'm not talking to the right person. Okay, you said no. Okay, so I'm going to find the person. Where's the yes? We're going to find the yes. And it actually helps you be more creative about whatever your goal is okay well this person said no but there's always another solution and yeah don't let it get you down i mean as an actress like nothing feels worse than like nothing feels worse than like you standing there in your little outfit this was like pre-female empowerment and i'd wear like whatever scantily clad thing i could wear and they're like no don't talk turn around turn around no. Oh, and my I'm, God, Jesse! Oh, my God. Like I have never felt so bad in my life. And I'm going to take that and I'm going to work harder.
0: <laughs> yes. And you're proving them all wrong right now. So I, I love that advice. So ladies, if you're listening, do not take no personally. There's so much potential. Keep going. And I actually want to go back a little bit in your story and talk about your upbringing. You grew up in Silicon Valley as a fourth-generation venture capitalist. I'm sure business and tech was always a conversation in your family dinners. How do you think it really has shaped you as the woman today in terms of how you think about business and money? I
1: feel very lucky that my family did talk about money to me. I can't tell you how many women in my life, friends women I work with, women in finance, I can't tell you how many of them feel uncomfortable talking about money. It's important to start talking about money. We as women, it's a real disservice to women because for some reason it's become this taboo topic for women to talk about money. And we have been taught to give away money before we know how to grow money or make money. And why would you give away money before you make money? Why would you do that? That's just not logical. And I feel very lucky because my family always was talking about not money, but about how to build a business and how to think about money in terms of a business. And so my dad, like when I was about 10 or 12, he was trying to explain how you could have ownership in a business to me. And he said, well, what are you into? And like any girl of that time, I was into Barbie because that was like one of five toys that was out there. And I was like Barbie. And he said, okay, Mattel owns Barbie. Let's go buy a share of Mattel. And he bought me a share of Mattel, which still sits on my desk to this day. And it's not doing as well as it was (laughs) once, but it represents something important to me. And I think about that all the time. And that was my first conversation into like the ownership and buying a brick of a business, you know? And I think that helped me think about building businesses. And then something else we used to always do is we played this computer game when it was like, what was it? 3D ROM, like those like things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. And the computer. Yeah. And we only had like two games, but one was Gazillionaire Deluxe. I need to like go find this game, but I'm sure there's an app or something now, but it was about supply and demand. So you were an alien <laughs> and you had a rocket ship and you would fly to different planets and you would be able to sell and buy things on different planets that other planets needed. And you wow. had, you would do well when the supply was lacking and you had something that they wanted and you'd sell it to them. Anyway, I loved it. <laughs> it was <laughs> great. And my brother and I would just play all day long, but my dad was like, this is great. It teaches you about supply and demand. And like, so we were always having these interesting business conversations. I was testing products. I was one of the first people to test AIM. I was in the first ever Skype video call. I was like at their first board meeting in Estonia. I've had these like crazy weird experiences that are sort of very, very rare. I'm sure like you don't hear them every day. And I am very grateful for them because I saw how a lot of these businesses started from nothing and grew. So, yes, that's been conversations in my family. My mom calls our dinners board of directors meetings. And it always is business. Right now it's a lot of crypto and we're talking about what, you know, web three
0: is and it's kind of always fun. Yeah. I'd love to be a fly in the wall in those dinners. That sounds very entertaining to me. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening listening. And now let's get back to the show. So it's actually interesting because you know you grew up talking about money, really learning about investing, being exposed to technology. But after you graduated UCLA, it wasn't the world you went into. You actually went into the world of entertainment. So I'd love to hear, you know, how did you think about your career in your early 20s? It's
1: sad because I'm telling you how we talked about business and I clearly knew about business. And I grew up around these startups. But it feels sad to me because you know, I'm this fourth generation venture capitalist, which I share because everyone came from somewhere. And I think that's a place I came from. And I had this great knowledge of how businesses were built. But because I was a female and the first female in this line, I didn't think I could go into it. They say you can be what you can see. And what I could see was my mom working incredibly hard raising four children Mm -hmm. and my dad being the business leader that he is. And then my aunt was a very successful actress in the 80s and 90s. And so when I was about eight, I was like, oh, that's what women do. That's what women do because she'd had success, which is so rare (laughs) in entertainment. And so I was like, that's what I'm going to do. So I was like hyper focused as I am in anything I do. And I was like, I went to UCLA for theater, film, and TV. My parents thought I was crazy. My dad's like, you didn't even apply to Stanford. You didn't even apply like where we went. Like, I was like, nope, UCLA has the best theater program in the country. That's where I'm going. And I just was hyper focused on that. I then graduated. I had some good success in acting. I worked really, really hard and met as many people in entertainment as I possibly could. I just remember at UCLA being like, I don't know anyone. In entertainment, who do I meet? Oh, you're writing something. Like, what is this script? Like, I was just always networking my whole life and trying to figure out how. You know, networking is just like the most important lesson. I think women don't do enough of that. Yep. And I would meet with people and be like, I don't even know why I'm meeting with you, but I heard that you might know this entertainment person, and like, I thought. But I worked really hard, did a bunch of movies, was on this Nickelodeon show, and then. I had this really degrading, you know, I had many very degrading auditions, but mm-hmm. I would film this Nickelodeon show I was on for six months out of the year in New York, in Green Point, Brooklyn, and then I would have six months off and I'd come back to Los Angeles and I would audition and do cattle calls and they never asked your name. They would often just make you turn around and videotape you or take pictures. And it just was like so wrong. And I remember I was feeling especially low at this one moment and mm-hmm. I was invited to one of the first Twitter conferences and it was at the Skirball Center in Los Angeles. And I went and I was one of the only women in the room, but I was very comfortable with that because that was sort of like what I'd grown up being. And I was like, oh, these early like tweeters and Twitterers, this is interesting. Like, what are they doing? And I just wanted to be a part of that. And I think growing up, I idolized because my family had idolized entrepreneurs. Mm. And I always had this vision, like they should be celebrated more. And now, you know, it sounds like, oh, they are though, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I had the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt on my show and nobody cared. No oh one. Like, I mean, well, wouldn't you just kill for that today? Like that's a percent, yeah. And I had these incredible people on the show and no one cared. Like I remember walking red carpets because of the Nickelodeon show, trying to talk about the show I was producing. And I'm like, no, but I have the CEO of Google. And they're like, I don't care. Literally like that's not interesting to me. Anyway, so what happened was I went to this Twitter conference and I just wanted to create something that kind of combined these two worlds So I created the first tech talk show. It was called The Valley Girl Show. It was really silly. It was like me and Beat TV back then. There were no real tech outlets. We were one of the first video companies to partner with like Forbes.com and Mashable and all these tech news sites. And ultimately, I became kind of an entrepreneur in media and built this business. We acquired some technology news blogs like Lalawag, which was the LA tech blog. We were building out this business insider type experience. But media was really broken. And the heart of this whole business was this show. And I went through this show, did five seasons of the show. After two seasons, I'd interviewed all men. And so I made an initiative to interview 50% women in tech. Because I realized I was facilitating the problem that I'd seen growing up. And that's so wrong. I needed more media exposure for these incredible female entrepreneurs. And so I call it the Batwoman signal. But I said, hey, we're looking for women. And we were just pitched like wow. crazy. It yes. was this magnet. And you realized, oh, my God, there's women here. And it was the early days of the skim and Rent the Runway and the guilt girls. And it was such a cool thing to see all of these women Sometimes they were too early for the show and I'd say, hey, maybe I can help you and get you some funding. I helped find like paperless posts, their first investors and numerous other companies, you know, and then I started writing angel checks. I got to a moment with the show where I I set it aside because as an entrepreneur who was very familiar with venture capital, which is not typically the case, I knew I could not take a dollar unless I could make it back. 10 times that. And Mm -hmm. media was so broken. CBS still owes us money. (laughs) And like, we were barely breaking even on the show. And then I had, you know, married, had my first baby and my husband, and I'm staying up 24 seven living the sort of like early influencer lifestyle, like trying to do everything from write, produce beyond the show, closed caption, whatever, get it to the Mm -hmm. network. And I was staying up 24-7, have all these crazy stories. I was like blackmailed by my producer. He stole all my hard drives. We couldn't get... It was just like a crazy, crazy life. And my husband's like, I hate to be Captain Obvious, but like your angel investments are going really well because yeah. I had just sold a company that I'd made tiny, tiny investment in. I'd sold it on the secondary market for 25X. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, I guess in the back of my head, I was thinking, okay, well, I can't run a fund though. I'm a woman. Truly, like, that's what I was thinking. And I was like, well, let me just see if I can go raise one. And so I went and I pitched a couple hundred, 500-something people, closed 50 of them, raised $10 million for the first fund, and started investing in female founders in consumer tech. And the first people I pitched were the people I had had on my talk show. So like Alexis Maybank is one of my investors, Todd Wagner, who is Mark Cuban's business partner on Broadcast.com these people I'd had on my show and they ended up being my biggest supporters.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so much I want to dig into in your story there. There's a couple of themes that really jump out to me. The one thing you mentioned that you saw early in your career is it's so important that you can be what you see, right? Like you said, even though you grew up in the environment of tech, you never saw a lot of women investors and entrepreneurs. And similar to your story, you know, I started this podcast. It's a side project for me because I still feel like I got comfortable with entrepreneurship when I started meeting incredible women on my podcast who made it seem more attainable. And they're just like us. So I think... That's so important and there's so much more opportunity for us to do. So it's interesting to see how that's impacted your life. And also, you mentioned something that I find very important is the power of networking, right? You did that so well in the entertainment industry, like you were talking about. And also, I would imagine in your talk show, right, you were hustling, trying to get people and networking. So I'd love to hear why you think more women should network because I'm also a firm believer in that. And some fun stories. I know you have an interesting story about Mark Cuban and your hustle to get him. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the most important lesson in my career is meet as
1: many people as you can. And I think it came from like, I watched my dad my mom would be like, we have four kids. You're going to Asia for a business conference. Take a child. And I would go with him to these incredible conferences and I'd watch him just network all day long. He'd meet as many people as he could. He taught me this rule that I swear by, which is every room you go into meet at least three people. And I think women Mm. in particular walk into these rooms pre-COVID. They're opening back up, but next time you're at a conference... But we walk in and we're like, I don't know anybody. And don't feel that way. Force yourself into the conversation and just be like, hi, I'm Jesse. I do this. Like, tell me about yourself. And I guarantee if you commit to meeting three people, you will meet at least 10. Because all of a sudden you start kind of feeling more comfortable in the room. And it's just like force yourself into that first conversation. But yeah, I I mean, from the show, I was definitely hustling. Like I remember (laughs) Jessica Alba had just started Honest Company Oh my god! I look back and I'm like, why didn't I invest in all the people I had on my show? Like, it all went public this year. I am telling you, all of them. It's like everyone from it was Coinbase. It was Jessica Alba from Honest. It was like so like Rent the Runway. I mean, crazy. I digress. But I wish I invested. But I didn't have any money, also. So it was like I don't know. Yeah, Catch Twenty Two, really. But yeah, Jessica Alba. I had brought on a business partner, Jonathan Polans, and you know you can't do anything alone. He was absolutely incredible. But I remember. He's like, okay, I got Jessica Alba's assistant's contact or something. Or no, it was like the assistant of the communications person or something. And I was like, okay. And he's like, you have to go to coffee with her. So I go to coffee with this girl. We go to coffee with this girl like 10 times. <laughs> and finally, she's like, okay, let's do it. And I have to say that was one of the more memorable gets for me because I interviewed Sheryl Sandberg and... I interviewed Jessica Alba and Jessica Alba, I had to meet in a room with, I mean, it must've been 20 people just to like get her on the show. It was a lot of people from Honest. It was a lot of people like now I've seen her around a little bit. She's more accessible, but yeah, I had to, I had to answer a lot of questions. And I remember I walked out of that room and I was like, this was the hardest interview I've ever had to get because usually what's not as hard, that was a fun one. And the Mark Cuban, yeah, we Googled and found his email address. And I emailed him and he would be like, he's so nice. First of all, he's the most wonderful human. But I would email and he'd be like, I can't do it right now. And I'd be like, okay, next season, yeah. can't do it right now. <laughs> and like, next season, can't do it right now. And then one day I get this email. It's like, I'm in San Francisco and I can do it tomorrow at noon yeah. at the St. Regis or whatever. And I'm like, I'm not in San Francisco, but I will get there and I will figure it out. And I don't have a camera crew and I will figure it out. And I did it. I mean, you know, you scramble when you get somebody good, you scramble. I had something similar happen with Ted Turner. And I remember we booked an interview with him for like an hour and I got there and he goes, you have five minutes. Oh my God, Jesse! And I go, can I have seven And he's like, okay. And it was hilarious. But I had seven minutes with Ted Turner. And then you do what you got to do. You do have to hustle and make it happen and make it work and do your research, which you clearly do. You know this business very well.
0: Now, what I love is, and what I appreciate is that you show up, right? I mean, in those times you get a really big guest, like, I don't know if you felt nervous at the time, it's nervousness, but excitement. And they're typically like quick turnarounds and you're like, I just have to step up and figure this out. And sometimes you don't even know where to start, but I love that you still did it and it always works out. And that nervousness, I'm sure doesn't go away, but you still show up, which I love. It just shows that you are courageous and you don't let that stop you, which is why your show had so much success and you continue to have success and what you're doing today. So I just love those stories because I think it's so applicable to, even if you don't have a podcast to your business, right? If you're trying to do outreach or just networking, like please women network. I think it's so important. So many things can come out of it and you just get to meet other incredible women up to stuff. So I just love those stories. You know, one thing you mentioned when you were getting into VC, you know, you talked about how you didn't have so much money, right? The show was breaking even. You were doing these small angel investments that were doing well. And in another interview, you've talked about how you had a bit of imposter syndrome, right? There wasn't a lot of women venture capitalists. So how did you not let that stop you, right? You had 500 meetings to get 50 yeses. I'm sure those days were tough, but what was really your motivation to push through and not let those noes hold you back at that time? I look back and I like blacked out. Like yeah.
1: I don't know where this insane confidence came from that I was just going to keep going. Because now I get down and I'm like, I did this when I was in my twenties. Like I've like accomplished something now I shouldn't be discouraged or like, why am I losing confidence? But I don't know. I just had like blind confidence or something. Like I just would keep going. I think also my dad has raised us to be like soldiers. Yeah. Like he just was always focused on efficiency How can I get as many meetings as possible done in one day? How can I meet as many people as I can when I land? Like everything was militant. And I think that was how I operated. And I just was like, I just will meet as many people as I can. And someone's going to get me there and someone's going to help me and someone's going to support me in this way. I don't know if that answered your question, but I think blind confidence, I also blacked out. I think I just was like working around the clock and you just keep going. I mean, just like pick yourself up. I think also like 80% of success is just showing up. And there are days, especially like as a mom of three that I'm up all night and I'm speaking at something and I'm like, just dying of exhaustion. I'm like, just show up. Just show up, like get there, you know? And I think that's just an important thing. Like just show up, do your best. It's never going to be perfect. And it never is. And like you get somewhere though, by trying new things. Like there's days where I just try things. Like I tweet out something weird or angry and I'm like, I wonder what's going to happen. And I just kind of like press go. And I'm like, ah, And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I think the most important lesson in terms of growing my career has been just try it and don't be afraid to try it. I think women in particular, I talk a lot about how they have to have all of their ducks in a row. And it's like, just throw paint against a wall. It's never going to be perfect. Founders in general do this too, because they'll say like, oh, well, wait till you see the next product. And I don't want to show you the website until it's the next iteration. And I'm like, I have literally seen wireframes drawn in pencil on a piece of paper. Like I've seen clay prototypes of vagina devices. Like this is normal. Like it's always going to have as a good founder, you're always trying to make it better. Yeah. So just show it to people because also they'll poke holes in it and you might waste less money because they showed you something you didn't see. So just show them whatever you have. I also like, I'm very visual, so I need to see something. So it's very helpful when people have a picture or a deck or a prototype or something that they've built out of cardboard.
0: I think, you know, especially as founders, there's no right answer. And sometimes you can sit there and analyze every situation. But trying things is the only way you're going to get feedback. And anytime I see myself thinking too much about something, I just go into try this, test it. There's no right answer. You just have to see what sticks. And I love that you do that also in your career. One thing that you mentioned, growing up in your family, seeing your dad really put himself out there, be like militant style. It really reminds me of my upbringing, actually my father as well. You know, at a certain point in my career, because I pushed so much and I never really thought about how I was feeling, just I kept going and going, I hit burnout. And you know, it's something I still as an entrepreneur try to struggle and I don't even have kids. So I look at someone like you and I'm thinking, how do you manage those nights that you're not sleeping and you're showing up? Like so much of entrepreneurship is sustaining your long-term energy and positivity. So how do you do it, Jesse, in your life or any tips or tricks that work well for you?
1: I have hit burnout. I've hit it a couple of times. And I think what I've realized also is while I was saying in my 20s, I was kind of like doing this militant style, like meet as many people as I can. I mean, that went all the way through until honestly, the last couple of years. And Mm -hmm. I I'm 37. I am proud of that. And about three years ago, I was like, I'm actually not being productive. Like I'm actually just meeting as many people as I can blindly without thinking about it. And there is a moment of almost like thinking you're being so productive, but you're actually being completely ineffective, not helpful to anyone. And I think what I learned too, as I grew my business a little is one, you can't do everything alone. It's so important. You need to hand off responsibility to a team. And I started working with Ashley, who's been with me through all my funds, and she's VP. She's incredible. And she started kind of giving me, sort of like, trust me signs, you know, like, trust me, I can handle this. Like, it's okay, I'll take it. And you can hand off things to people on your team. Don't be a micromanager. Sometimes they surprise you. That's really helped me more. Recently as well, we've grown our team a little more and I'm able to actually hand off full projects and really trust people. That's helped me. But also what I do now in terms of when I feel myself hitting burnout and it's that exhaustion and it comes with anxiety and Mm -hmm. it's usually when I'm having five cups of coffee a day. (laughs)
0: Jesse, yes. You have
1: to do the complete reset. You know, you're (laughs) like, oh my God. Like I let it creep up. Like right now I'm on like two and a half cups. I let (laughs) it creep up and then you're like, Uh, And then I like cut myself off from coffee for like a month, but I think it all comes together and you hit a wall. And the best thing you could do is stop, cancel your entire next week of meetings, cancel the entire thing, sleep for a day, and then start just planning. Like you need that space for the creativity to figure out how you are going to be productive, to figure out how you can reset and manage this better. I think it's actually productive to just cancel every meeting, cancel every call and just say, okay, so this isn't working. I am dying. And what I'll usually do is I'll sit down and go old fashioned, make a list in my little notebook and I will just write down every single thing in my entire life. I will write down, I used to try to be like, work and personal. I'm a, <laughs> yes. mom of three. I'm a mom of three. My nanny's doing my social media with me. Like, I mean, it's I just it. like, there's no line. So I just write down every single thing in my entire life that is some to do for me. And then I start saying, okay, so-and-so can take that. So-and-so can take this. What are my three goals right now that I want to focus on? Okay. We're planning for the next fundraise. Okay. We are trying to support this portfolio business. Okay. We're trying to get this new initiative out. And then how can I curate my schedule so that that is what I'm focused on and then hand off the rest or just cut it out? Like you realize Mm -hmm. like sometimes you're doing things that you're like, why am I doing this? This isn't, it's not productive for me at all. You know? So I think that, and then also I reschedule, it sounds messed up, but I reschedule meetings every month, every week and every day. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't want to like reschedule you. I don't want to do that. But when I see my schedule just completely packed and I can't do anything and there's no space to breathe and I can't even get back to people on email, which You also need space for. And I often Mm -hmm. forget that. I will reschedule. I try to not do it like an hour before, but in the morning, sometimes I'll in the beginning of the week be like, this is a potentially movable meeting. Yeah. And if I get to Wednesday and haven't accomplished these three things, I'm probably gonna move it. And then that morning I'll sort of send out an email and be like, we need to reschedule this meeting. But I think you need to make sure that your schedule is productive, but productive Mm -hmm. for you, and that you can breathe and that you are taking care of yourself. Like I just I don't do that. I didn't do that before I was a mom, and I don't do that as a mom. And so now, like Friday afternoons, I try to like block off four to six so I can just like go on a walk or something. Yeah. And the joke is, sometimes I end up filling that up with like, oh, like it's a meeting, yeah. but, like it's a walk meeting. So I'm sort of taking care of myself. But like, what if it's a walk meeting with a margarita after? Then it's yeah. like you no. Know, then I'm like taking care of myself. But I think you just need to find those little moments. And what is it? Like last week, I got my hair cut and. I was like, oh, my God, I haven't gotten my haircut in like months. (laughs) And this is taking care of myself. Like I felt like, oh, I don't have time to get my haircut or whatever. But I actually felt pampered for a minute. And I think it's important to take those moments. Don't feel guilty about them. Like that's silly. But definitely remember to take care of yourself. And I think if you're spinning out of control, stop everything.
0: Yes. Gosh, that really resonates with me. It's funny. You mentioned the coffee thing. That was me yesterday. I feel like coffee. I just know when I need to stop it, like heightens the anxiety if I'm near that burnout mode. And I actually yesterday I did stop around like 3 p.m. because I was like, I need a break to just step back. Because when you're in that mindset, you think everything is going wrong. I'm like, how do I run this business? How do I do the podcast? It's just everything is overwhelming at that time. And I took a bath. I never take baths. Like this whole rest thing is new to me. And I felt like a completely different person. I was like, all right, I got this. Yes. So stopping is a new concept for me, but it really sounds simple, but it, it's game-changing. Wow. Even if it's like 30 minutes, 10 minutes, just yeah. stop.
1: I've yourself. The thing where I just like walk around the block like five times yeah. too, where I've done the bath where you're like, that's bad. When you hit moment you need to take a bath, <laughs> yeah. Put a a candle. Like, <laughs> you're out of control. Yeah. <laughs> you're like Googling like what relaxes yeah. people. Yeah, literally. <laughs> A bath. Okay. I have a bath. I could take a bath. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like I do that with, yeah, like a walk. I'm trying to do more just kind of walks yeah. around the block. And we do so many Zooms now. I think it's also okay to be like, can we just do a call?
0: I've met you before. Yeah. It's okay. I don't have to look at your face, you know? Totally. Yeah. No, I love that. Well, that's super helpful advice. And I like even the concept of rescheduling your day and meetings, depending on how you feel. I've actually heard that from a few people. So shifting gear a little bit, you know, I want to talk more about your fund. You know, your first fund, you had such incredible success. You had six exits. Two of them were acquired for over 100 million. We've had actually a few of your founders on the podcast who are all lovely, like Heidi Zach And most recently, Natalie Gordon, founder of BabyLess. I know you guys just invested in, you know, these women are killing it. And despite all the success that you've had in these funds, I'm curious, you've mentioned COVID actually, despite all the hard you've had with the first fund was even more difficult. I believe you were also pregnant fundraising, your second fund during COVID. So what was that experience like? And how did you, again, push through those very difficult times? Yeah, I mean,
1: it's funny because when you talk about burnout, like I think of a couple moments in my 20s, and then I think about a couple moments during COVID where I was finishing raising our second fund. And yeah, I was pregnant. And I was, I mean, this was one of those militant moments in my life where I was taking 10 to 12 meetings a day on Zoom. Wow. I was fried. My husband would look at me and be like, How do you do that? (laughs) Like it was the first time, you know, COVID really like opened our significant other's eyes to like our actual life. He's like, You actually have meetings all day. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, no. And I'd feel like chained to my desk and like I'd pee, and then I'd be like five minutes late to things. And it was brutal just because of the, you know, you're staring at people on Zoom and just trying to like keep it going. I mean, I think for me, I just, I just have to finish this fund. I have to close this fund. I actually took a moment because I didn't know what was happening. I needed to kind of shift and worry about my portfolio for a minute in the beginning Mm. of COVID. So we started paying more attention to our portfolio. We'd raised some of the fund, but I didn't think I'd be able to close people on zoom. I don't know what I was thinking, but I just didn't think that if they're writing me million dollar checks, I thought they'd feel like they had to meet me or whatever. And people were feeling really uncomfortable at that time seeing people. And so I took a couple of weeks off and focused on my portfolio and supporting them. And then I kind of got back on the proverbial road (laughs) and just was like, I'm going to see if I can close people on Zoom. And I remember being like, people are writing me million-dollar checks and I've never met them. This is the weirdest thing ever. But it was hard. And then... I just got through it. I mean, I was exhausted and I was more exhausted from like the Zoom burnout than, sure. than anything else. And then I was pregnant, but my kids were sort of like a little more functional. So they kind of like could take care of themselves. They were around me. I felt like a lot more now I can kind of like, now they're back in school, which is awesome. It's like my freedom. But yeah, so I don't know. I think you just take one step in front of the next and just just keep going. But I, I wish I hadn't stopped fundraising at that moment. I think back, you know, you're always sort of like, so hard on yourself. And I think back and I'm like, I bet it would have been a bigger fund. I bet it would have been like, I think I needed to take that time.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting to hear. I haven't heard you mention that. So that's really interesting. I'm sure you get this question a lot. But I think it's a really important one. You see 1000s and 1000s of pitches. What do you think are three mistakes that women are making when it comes to raising money for their business?
1: One confidence, you need to be super confident, but don't let that get confused with not being open because you need to be confident, but not like, I know what's best. You don't know. Like I get a lot of that sometimes where I'm like, that's not confidence. That's actually like blind confidence. Like I'm telling you, this is not how it works. Like I have a business like this. I'm just trying to give you a piece of advice, but I'd say be confident because so many of these women come in and they'll pitch me the exact same business that a male ceo pitched me wow. with an enormous valuation, no product and like zero revenue and they'll come in and pitch me the same thing at half the valuation with 4 million of revenue and they've bootstrapped to the whole thing mm. and they'll be like i'm so sorry we're only doing 4 million of revenue and i'll be like okay so that's really good <laughs> Like This is a beautiful company. So why are you apologizing? I just had this guy come pitch me the same thing and he doesn't have any revenue for a product. And that's something to just be aware of. We're so hard on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Be confident. Also, you know your business better than anybody else. You've built it to this point. So be confident in what you're building. Don't apologize in the room. Like I think there's a lot of like, I know that this looks bad because of this. I'm like, actually, I wasn't thinking that at all, but now I am. So, you know, like I think women often want to tell you everything about it. Simplify your pitch. Be like, here's where we're at. Here's where we're going. Here's what we need. Don't feel like this is how we got here. I have to tell you the entire convoluted story about how we got here and it didn't go well when we did this and it didn't go well when we did this. You can say we've learned a lot of lessons and here's where we are and here's where we're going and here's what we need. And I think you just keep it in that format. So confidence and just simplify. And then what's the other thing I think women in particular, like make sure you're building a billion dollar business. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes they come and they say, yeah, no, it's, it's a $50 million market. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. We don't invest in those. Like we can't invest in those because I need you to sell it for like a billion dollars, so I can make all of my investors' money back many times over. So you need to go figure out how to make that a bigger market and multiply that by ten, that by a hundred, and then come back to me. I hope that math adds up. Yeah, I know it does. <laughs> but come back to me when it's a billion-dollar opportunity. And sometimes they're not even seeing the billion-dollar opportunity. Yeah. So make sure you're seeing your product and then all the things you could build around it. And what are those? And how can you create more products? And what else will your customers want to buy from you? And I think you need to see the whole picture. Don't just see what's right in front of you. So I'd say confidence, simplify, and then just make sure you're seeing the big picture in building a billion-dollar business.
0: Got all, all great mistakes that you mentioned. And another question that I have for you, you've mastered the art of investing in founders, even when you were on the Valley Girl show. What do you really look for in terms of the right founders? You know, what characteristics or traits do you see that they embody now that you are on your second fund and have had incredible success?
1: We think about this a lot because we're like, okay, what personality type are they that what's worked for us? And it's the heads down founder, doesn't have anything to prove, doesn't need to be the star, just like loves the work. And just, they're usually terrible communicators. They're usually the ones that I'm like, what the hell's going on? I haven't heard from you in six months. Like you haven't told me anything. And then they're like, Talia from This Is Elle is like, oh, we're projecting 50 million this year. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm not going to bother you. You call me if you need me. It sounds like you're doing great. And then she goes and sells her company. And I think those are the founders. Her, Esther from Squad, who sold it to Twitter this year or last year, was definitely like heads down, building, was sort of like, yeah, we have like over a million users. I'm like, what? What? What happened? Yeah, we're partnering with Snapchat. Like all these good things are happening. And I think she was always about the work, was always just like, this is working. This is not working. So we shut it down just wanted to solve the problem. And the coolest thing about Esther was like, when they pitched me, she wasn't building a social media app. She's one of those founders who just figured it out, even if the bank account was empty. She was building an audio, I talked to her about this recently, an audio technology that could potentially plug into Alexa. And it was like this huge idea that wasn't working. Whatever she was doing with that wasn't working. She shifted to another platform, called it Molly. Then they turned it into a company called Squad App and that worked. So you want the founders that are open to pivoting that they shut it down really quick if it's not working. But I'd say it's like their head's down about the work, don't want to be the star, listen to their users, want to problem solve. I see Lauren Schulte from Flex is like Mm. that. She's really just so focused on the product. And she's the first one to call me and be like, did any of your other companies say that the Facebook algorithm changed? We noticed that it changed. I feel like it's not selling as well on Facebook because the algorithm changed. Is that what you're hearing? I'm like, well, that happened literally yesterday and I didn't even know about it till you called me. So now I'll go check with everyone. But she is so focused on every dollar of digital marketing spend Mm -hmm. and the details and wants to problem solve. So we're looking for the headstand founders who have nothing to prove and want to build a billion dollar business.
0: Yeah. And just talking about Natalie Gordon, because she was just on last week, the founder of Babyless. I mean, oh, two hundred almost like $250 million business. I'm like, Natalie, do you understand how, how impressive that is? And she's so humble, you know, like what she's built is amazing. So it just reminded me of her when oh, you mentioned God. that. Yeah, that's the
1: greatest story because we invested late in that. We don't typically come in that late, but someone sent me this deal and I'm like, she's only raised $10 yes. million? and she's doing $250 million? And then I, I felt like I had to get on the phone with her just to be like, is this a joke? I've never seen a company like this before. And also, I've never heard of you. So how what? is this possible? And she was like, yeah, no. And then, I mean, I think I tweeted something like, this was the best Financials I've ever seen. It was like someone brought me a Christmas gift early because it was so clean and you just sort of like hold on for dear life, hoping that it's not too good to be true. Like she was so heads down profitable, so focused on profitability and EBITDA and all the right things. And Yeah. I think those are the best founders. And that actually is what jumped out to me as I was sort of like, you know, you click, 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 click in my head. Like she was heads down. She worked hard. She hit all the markers and built a beautiful business.
0: Yes. Before she started BabyList, she actually started another company that quote unquote failed. So there's so many learnings that came from that. And, you know, another question I have for you in those companies that you have invested in that may not have been that successful, what Mm -hmm. do you think were some of the red flags in those companies?
1: You know, this isn't talked about enough. Like you have to lose a lot of money to make money in VC. And I think people need to understand that you can't go out, raise a fund and invest in like five deals. Like as an early stage investor, I have to go out. We do 20 to 30 deals per portfolio because it's a gamble. It's like gambling. I also want to encourage more women to get into it. It's not brain surgery. It's like we're picking winners. We're trying to pick the winners and you see patterns. And I think it's really important. So you're asking what I learned from some of these? Yeah, the ones that didn't work out. Yeah, I learned you just start to see some patterns and you realize that the moment things start going down, like I see it now I can identify it quicker. So we do this thing two years in and we say, are they going somewhere or are they not? And they basically have two years to prove us post-investment and that determines if we will put more money in or not. And so I think at the two-year mark, you can tell the patterns. Like they said they were gonna do this, they didn't. They said they were gonna do this, they didn't. And make sure you deliver. You wanna be conservative in your projections and over-deliver. You want to do exactly what you said you were going to do. And if it didn't work, you shut it down really quick and you try something new. You wanna be dependable. And we've seen everything. Like some funny stories are like, Boyfriend and girlfriends are literally the worst founders (laughs) of all time. People ask me about... They're like, so people are afraid to invest in us because I'm a solo founder. And I'm like, I actually have had the worst things happen with co-founders. And it's because someone always falls off. There's always like a lawsuit. It's like always a disaster. And that'll take a company down. I actually love solo founders because I know who's in charge. And I know that they're going to take it all the way and they'll build a great team under them who they can lean on. But like, there's no issue with who's in control or who's doing what. And I think with boyfriends and girlfriends in particular, we just invested in one couple and it's important to find these things out before. And this is my talk. I say, okay, I'm glad you're in love. You're probably going to get married and have babies. It's so wonderful. Let's negotiate the divorce today. Today, we're going to negotiate how you're going to break up, what's going to happen to you, what's going to happen to the company. We're going to make it so that there is zero litigation that is going to take place when you break up, just in case, for everyone's sake, because it happens so often. And it's almost better to like invest in a married couple because they're already like in it. But mm. boyfriend and girlfriend, you still have that like power dynamic and you're like, I could leave you at any time. And it's like, actually, you're kind of married because you have a business together. So that's been kind of interesting and has taken down more than one of my businesses. And then co-CEOs doesn't work. You need to know who's in control there. And then sometimes people just surprise you and you really get to know people when you go through a tough time. And some of my founders have proved to me over and over again as they go through tough times, whether it's COVID or before that, who they are as humans, and some turn into terrible people. Really? then They always want to blame someone and then they blame you and then they blame, you know, we've had all sorts of crazy things. But now we are much more aware of who we're investing in and we have really interesting diligence checks and people are like, why are you asking that? I'm like, oh, no reason. We just had a criminal at one of our companies. (laughs) But I think it's never going to be perfect all the time you're investing in Two to three people in a room sometimes with an idea who say they're going to do something, and you can do as much diligence as you want, but it's not a perfect science.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. No. And I'm sure, you know, now being on your second fund, there's so many more patterns, like you mentioned, so you can kind of filter a little bit better now. But it's always so interesting to hear stories like that. And Jesse, I want to close on one topic, although I'm sure we could talk about this for just in the, even another podcast. But you've mentioned earlier in the interview that, you know, women have been taught to give away money versus invest and grow it what advice do you have for women listening who want to feel more empowered and confident when it comes to money or even talking about money because it is still a taboo subject?
1: Yeah, you know how everyone plays a role in their friend group? I'm the friend who with my college friends, with my girlfriends from high school, whatever it is, I'm like, so you're investing in the stock market, right? Like, what are you guys doing? And I did this a couple of years ago and I like sucked the life out of a dinner because they all just clammed up and were like wow oh. and I realized the problem is they think they have to know all the answers about everything. Women think like we think we have to like know everything before we can invest and you don't. You will learn so much more if you like buy some bitcoin and figure out what it is. And if you invest in an early stage company and figure out how they build it and what creates a successful sort of formula for that. And if you go to Starbucks every day and you buy some Starbucks stock because you think that that's never going to go away because people always drink coffee like you and I who drink five <laughs> yeah. coffee a day and then like go, go crazy. <laughs> but I think I would say put your money to work, play with it, don't feel like you have to have all the answers. If you are in a marriage, make yeah. sure that your significant other is bringing you to every single financial meeting. 50% of that is yours. I just met this girl at that event we were at. I met this girl and she had just sold a company. And I said, oh my God, that's incredible. What are you doing with the money? And that's me. I ask about the money. I'm a, it's a problem, I know. But I ask, I go, what are you going to do with it? And she goes, oh, I gave it to my husband. He does that. And I was like, does what? She's like, well, he manages money. And I'm like, you just made millions of dollars. Why would you give it to your husband? You should decide together what to do and you should be involved in that. She's like, well, I don't know. It's just kind of like over my head. I'm like, how is it? It's money. How is it over your head? What do you want to do with it? You could do anything with it. You can invest in all sorts of things. And that is crazy to me someone who's just created wealth for their family and she's handing it to her husband. And I think that's wrong. Make sure you and your significant other talk about everything. I mean, my husband, I'll be like, why'd you buy Netflix? You didn't talk to me about Netflix. We didn't talk about Netflix. And now like, you know, we kind of know what we're comfortable with each other doing. But in the beginning I was like, no, we need to talk about all of these decisions together and the more exposure you have the more you will learn like i'm not saying i know everything about how to invest or what the right investments are but i'm willing to take that risk and to try investing in different things you know i think the simplest way for women to start is get a coinbase account for crypto and get a coinbase or gemini mm-hmm. i'd say those are who i would trust right now and then get a Robinhood or an Acorns account to start kind of like playing around with the stock market. There's different ways to do it. You could do a robo-advisor. You can like pick your stocks. But I love Robinhood because I can just kind of like buy whatever yeah. when I feel like it. And I think those are two simple ways. Like the world makes it so easy to put your money to work now, whether it's $100 or 10000 And so I'd say just go do it yourself and try. We don't have to have all the answers. So put your money to work.
0: Yes. And there's two things that stand out when I I used to be in finance. And like the first bonus I got, I just invested it because that's what people told me to do. And now, you know, fast forward 10 years, that was my seed money for the business that I'm launching, like who would ever thought and I didn't know what I was doing in my early 20s. And the other thing that stands out, which is a theme that I see a lot of my podcast is in married relationships. You know, a lot of the women that have joined us have said, I initially never really talked about money with my husband, like even though I was doing just as good as him or well, and actually, sometimes even better. He was managing the money. And it wasn't until they got divorced that they look back. They're like, he wasn't even managing it properly. Like, what was I thinking? So I think that is so important for women and men to just talk about their unified financials and not always trust someone. They might be doing the best they can, but you should just have some level of awareness of what's going on. And you don't need to know every specific detail, but it's also your money. So I love that you mentioned that because I think there's so much work that we could do there and just create more awareness on the importance of having those conversations in a marriage, so.
1: I love that you invested 10 years ago and that was the seed money because I get this question a lot, which I find sort of funny, but women will be like, okay, so I invest it in the stock market and then what do I do with it? Like, how do I get it out? And that's always the question. How do I get it out? I'm like, well, when you need it, you take it out. <laughs> like it's just growing instead of sitting there. So yeah. I think that's something to understand too. You invest it, you leave it there, you let it grow, you try different things with it. But if you're buying a house or you're starting a business, like you can take it out
0: Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to leave it there. Totally. And you know, that's interesting. You brought that up because I didn't even think about using that as my seed money. I just kind of was thinking like, okay, where can I get the money from? You know? And I was like, oh, I have the investment account. I could sell the shares. It's not a 401k. So it took me some thinking to realize that, which is so interesting. I never thought about it until you brought it up. But yes, the power of investing, even when you, if you don't know what you're doing, it still will grow. If you just put in the S&P 500 for 10 years, like
1: (laughs) perfect. Perfect. That's a good safe bet.
0: Yes. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. I could talk to you for much longer, but this was so, so much fun. Thank you.
1: This was so fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny, and it's never too late to start your own empire.